2006, February 21st, lecture number 32, Space, Time, and Gravity, General Relativity. Begin in just a moment. All right, good morning, everybody. Let's begin today's lecture. The, uh, for those of you who haven't already, after class, the uh, homework number four and a number of bubble sheets are up here in the front. Because we have a, uh, a demo, which I have not yet been able to do before because I didn't have the right materials, I am a little unsure of timing, and so I'm going to omit the starting question today just to give me that little extra five minutes of, of margin so I don't run over time. Yesterday, we introduced the first of a three-part lecture on Einstein's universe in which we introduced the special theory of relativity. The basic bottom line of special relativity is that the old notions of absolute space and absolute time are incorrect because we have to view the universe through the agency of light. We have to actually see the universe in order to make measurements of any kind. Measure sizes, measure times, measure masses. All of those things require the agency of light. I can no longer really view as an ab space as an absolute grid of x, y, z positions keeping absolute time. But Einstein showed us, in fact, that space and time are relative to each other. It depends upon how I compare my view of the universe to the view of the universe of another observer who has to use the same laws, measure with the same speed of light, but may be moving relative to me. And we saw how time, for example, and the flow of time changed, how a moving observer sees a clock moving slower than the person who's riding with that clock. It's an observable fact. We can put an atomic clock onto a satellite or a spacecraft or an aircraft, make it move at a faster speed, and in fact see that it slows down as seen from the ground next to a person who's standing next to an identical clock. The actual bottom line of that was not that space and time are not part of physical reality, but they depend upon the observer's perspective. There's an irreducible relativity of perspective. But there is an entity called space-time, the combination of space and time that actually is observer-independent. And all of a lot of phenomena can be understood very clearly in the context of special relativity. But special relativity was a very special case, hence the name. It was only the case of uniformly moving observers with no accelerations and no gravity. And today we have to now extend that to actually getting us space, time, and gravity and developing a new theory of gravity, which is called general relativity. The basic ideas, the key ideas for today's lecture are as follows. We're going to introduce general relativity, which is the modern theory of gravitation. It's the replacement for Newtonian gravity. Basically, it can be stated as follows, a little sing-song. Matter tells space-time how to curve. Curved space-time tells matter how to move. And we're going to develop this argument and give a little demonstration of this here through the course of the lecture. Now, general relativity is not simply an airy theory which is abstractly mathematical. It actually has certain practical aspects to it. It can be tested. If general relativity could not be tested, it wouldn't be worth anything as science. But in fact, it's eminently testable in the universe. We're going to see two very specific tests of that, namely the perihelion precession of the planet Mercury. The Mercury's orbit actually slowly precesses which direction in space its perihelion line points changes in time. Newton's laws make one prediction, the observations disagree, and general relativity closes that gap and makes the exact prediction. 
Similarly, the bending of starlight as it passes by the sun. Light travels through curved space-time as well, and it actually bends as it goes around the sun. It's a phenomenon called gravitational lensing, and it turns out not just to be simply a mathematical idea, but in fact is observed. It was this observation of the bending of starlight that really led to the first observational experimental confirmation of general relativity in the year 1919. And we're going to talk about other practical aspects of relativity as well. Now, let's review for a second what we know about Newtonian gravity. This comes from Astronomy 161, and of course we reviewed it during the first week. Gravity, Newtonian gravity is basically saying that matter tells gravitation how to exert a force. Basically, gravity is the force that's felt between two different diff pieces of matter separated by a distance r between them. Now, what Newton's second law told us was that forces tell matter how to accelerate. If I'm in the presence of a gravitational field, this basketball, for example, it has a certain little mass. I'm here, the radius of the Earth away from the center of the Earth. And through some means, the Earth exerts a force upon the basketball. And similarly, according to Newton's third law, the basketball exerts a little force back on the Earth that is equal and opposite. However, because the mass here is very small, the force lets the basketball have a big acceleration but indeed, the Earth is accelerated towards the basketball, but in proportion to its mass. And since the Earth is way more massive than this Spalding basketball, we are sensible of the acceleration of the basketball as it falls to the ground. What we don't sense is the Earth rising up a little bit to meet the basketball. It's accelerated towards it as well. All that's an Newtonian view. This Earth rising up to meet it is much more obvious if instead of using a basketball as our mass, we use the moon. And then we would find that the Earth and moon are orbiting each other, but the Earth and moon don't orbit around the center of the Earth. They orbit around the center of mass of the Earth-Moon system. And there is the Earth feeling an acceleration, a force from the moon, and accelerating in response. The moon feeling an equal and opposite force, but being a smaller mass, accelerates more. Now. If we go through this mathematically, we can, write, we can do this in the following way. A little mass, little m, is accelerated by the gravity of another mass, a big mass, so I'll use big M in this one. Newton's force law for gravity said that that force is equal to the gravity constant times the mass of the big object times the mass of the second object divided by the distance between their centers squared, which we'll call r squared. That's, that's Newton's law of force. He also says that the acceleration, second law, is the force divided by the mass. In an equal force, the acceleration will be inversely proportional to your mass. If you push on a Mack truck, it accelerates less than if you push on me with exactly the same force. Now, I can work this out mathematically. I can see that the force on top is simply the gravity force, g big M times little m divided by r squared, divided by, in this case, I'm interested in the acceleration of the small mass, divided by little m. Oh, look. The little m cancels out. And the acceleration is simply g times the big M, which might be the mass of the Earth for a falling body, divided by the distance between their centers squared. That's why, here on the Earth, just like Galileo showed back in the 1600s, two masses, very different, falling under gravity, accelerate exactly the same. Because in Newton's formation of gravity and Newton's formation of the, of the way in which ex objects accelerate, masses accelerate in response to a force, the mass here just sort of magically cancels out. Now, 
That's classic Newtonian physics. We've all been through this demonstration before from 161 and earlier. But Einstein had two primary objections to this. If you look at this now in the context of a universe in which I don't have a God's eye view of absolute space and absolute time, but have to be riding in the universe, viewing it through the agency of light. The first is this expression of the force here. Force is equal to the product of the masses, no problem with that, divided by the distance between them squared. In this formulation, the Earth has instantaneous knowledge of how much matter is in the sun and vice versa, even though it takes light eight and a half minutes to go from the Earth to the sun. So how is it that everything, all information in the universe is transmitted at fastest by light, and yet gravity in this formulation is implicitly instantaneous? That doesn't make sense. The agency of gravity has to know other matters out there at the speed of light, which means there's an intrinsic relativity in the gravity force. Now, of course, the mass of the sun and the mass of the earth aren't changing, but the distances between them is changing. How does that get communicated across space if it's not instantaneous? That's the first problem when we switch over to the relativistic view of the world. The second problem is more subtle. Notice how the mass here divided out. This mass here is the mass involved in the gravitational force. This mass here is the mass of the small body involved in the process of inertia, the resistance of matter to being accelerated. Right? A big mass resists being accelerated in proportion to the amount of stuff in it. Now, it's all well and good to say that the inertial mass and the gravitational mass that appear in both these formulas are the same. They're equivalent. But do we know that? What if, in fact, the gravitational mass and the inertial mass were not the same? Then they would not divide out. Is there, in fact, a strict equivalence between gravitational mass and inertial mass? This is an implicit assumption of relativity. I'm sorry, so split, sorry so let me state, it. state that again. It's an implicit assumption of Newtonian physics, but is it right? Sometimes we have to go back and question our assumptions and see if they're right, and then see what the consequences of questioning that assumption is. And that's what Einstein really did. He made a twofold questioning to try to incorporate gravity into the view of relativity, the view that it is space-time, not space and time, that is the only observer-independent reality. The first question is, how does the force get transmitted at all? And the second one is, is the inertial mass and the gravitational mass really equivalent? Gravity was always a problem for people, even from the time that Newton proposed it, because gravity was mysterious, right? I can understand pushes and pulls. I walk up to you and I push you and you push back. That's forces interplaying. Or we put a rope between us and we pull and tug on that rope and have a little tug of war. Right? I can see the agency transmitting the force, my push through my arms or pull through the rope. Gravity is weird. What's the agency? It's just like the Earth is just kind of reaching out through empty space and grabbing the basketball. Newton proposed that gravity was an action at a distance. This notion of a force acting without an obvious agent really bugged the crap out of people. Right? Kepler thought of forces being transmitted through some agency and thought that the way you would discover what the force was that was moving the planets around the sun was to discover that agency, what was doing the push, or maybe what was doing the pull. 
Newton realized that there simply was no agency he could determine, or rather he decided to just punt the question. He said, I'm not going to frame a hypothesis as to what the agency is transmitting the gravitational force. I'm simply going to say it acts at a distance and then not worry about it and go on to formulate the laws of motion, go on to formulate the laws of planetary motion, laws of the universe, without ever once saying what gravity is, just simply asserting what its properties are. And most people assume that gravity did in fact work. Gravity does remarkably well work, right? Anybody who's skied down a mountain slope knows that gravity may be the smallest, weakest force of nature, but it doesn't feel that way when the trees are coming up real fast and your skis are falling out from under you, or whatever it is. Or as you're sliding across the pond, gravity feels awfully strong. So people understand that gravity works. We just didn't understand why. And that's really a problem. We really do want to understand what the agency of this force is. Maybe this isn't the right way of looking at it. And so this question of how is gravity transmitted if it's not instantaneous, but through something? How does the Earth know that the sun is there and vice versa? That's not a trivial question. It gets at the very heart of what gravity is, and gravity is the force that rules the universe on the largest scales. So if we are to understand the universe, we must answer this question. We can't just sweep it under the rug. Now, let's see how Einstein went about this. Yeah, there was a question back? Okay. Principle of equivalence here. The first postulate of spe special relativity that we saw yesterday stated that the laws of physics are the same for all uniformly moving observers. And I kind of enhanced that in yellow with italics. This is the way of spe formulating special relativity. When we add to this the second postulate that all observers see the same speed of light independent of their speed relative to the source, all the phenomena of special relativity literally fall out from those two hypotheses. Everything works. What Einstein did in 1907, this is two years after formulating special relativity, is he started into the problem of how you incorporate gravity into the view of relativity. He started out by generalizing the first postulate to read, now instead, the laws of the gravity, I'm sorry, the laws of physics are the same for any freely falling observer. Free fall is simply what the basketball does here when I release it. It simply falls under gravity. If I'm orbiting in a spaceship, orbiting the Earth, I am freely falling around the Earth. I don't have to act in some way to keep my orbit. I simply swirl around. I'm falling in a circle, like Newton showed that the moon is literally falling around the Earth in its orbit. And an observer in the space shuttle and an observer on the ground agree on the laws of physics. Even though I'm standing still, on the Earth, in the Earth's gravity field, and the astronauts in the shuttle are falling around the Earth as they swirl around and around, or maybe the space station or something else. Or an observer on the moon, or the observer on another far, freely falling in their gravity fields. Now, in this case, if this is true, there's no distinction between inertial and gravitational acceleration. So the fact that the little m canceled from that little acceleration formula becomes a natural consequence. But it requires us to state that the laws of physics must be the same for any freely falling observer. That's the principle of equivalence. That's how you can get away with the, the M magically cancels out. But if you now state that the laws of physics are the same for every freely falling observer, you've just learned something important about how the universe is put together when you begin to explore the consequences of it. And that's what Einstein began to do in 1907.
Now let me demonstrate a little bit about how this principle of equivalence works. We're going to have two observers, rather in this cartoon view, of course, there's Isaac Newton here, standing in a closed box, so Newton doesn't know where he is. He's in a closed box with no windows, but he feels a gravitational force. How does he know that? Well, he takes an apple and he drops it. He watches it accelerate. Einstein here is not in a gravitational field. He's out in empty space as far away from any star as he can get. He's in the weakest portion of zero gravity you can possibly imagine. And he's also in a closed box, but that box is accelerating upwards with one gravity of equivalent of acceleration. And he releases an apple. What happens? Well, we've got a little movie here. We'll bring this up. It always takes a couple seconds for quick time to launch. What they would see is, let's start in the frame of reference of the observers. The observers don't see the outside world. All they see is the four walls of the elevator. In that frame, the apple appears to simply drop at acceleration of 1g. And both would say, I'm feeling an acceleration. Now we go to the reference frame of the stars. And of course, when you release the apple, you catch up with it in Einstein's box, whereas on Newton releasing the apple, it falls down with respect to the Earth. The apple is accelerating due to gravity in Newton's case, whereas in Einstein, there's no gravity acting at all. It's the acceleration of the rocket ship due to a force in its engines, i.e. an inertial acceleration, as opposed to Newton's gravitational acceleration. But their views if they compare notes after they get through and they sit down at their poker game and they say, okay, what did you see when you dropped the apple? They both agree it accelerated downward at one at 980 meters per second per second. No, 980 centimeters per second per second. They agree upon the acceleration of gravity. They agree upon the rules of physics. They agree on the mass inferred for that apple. This is the principle of equivalence. It's very simply stated. It's a very simple thought experiment but it has some very deep consequences. Now, this leads us to what's called general relativity. This is a generalization of special relativity that works now in the presence of gravitational fields and accelerations, and in fact, is the modern theory of gravity. What is gravity? Gravity is a force that binds matter to matter. But the big question that Newton left unanswered is, how does matter know that other matter is out there and how far away it is? How does the sun know how far away the earth is and how much matter is in the earth and vice versa for there to be a gravitational force proportional to the sum of their masses, uh, product of their masses divided by the distance between their centers squared? How does that work? Now, the goal here is to generalize this view of space-time in special relativity to bring together an answer for this. What special relativity did is it used the agency of light to unify space and time into space-time but it kind of left matter separate. Matter wasn't a, a, playing a role in space and time here. So we now br need to bring matter into space-time. We need to bring its effects into view into space-time. And what that's going to do is it's going to unite matter and our notion of gravity through the agency of space-time. So light unifies space and time into space-time. Matter and gravity are now going to be united together, if you will, through the agency of space-time. That's the agency that transmits the gravitational force. It's going to be space-time itself. Let's, to do understand this, to bring in space-time, we have to bring in the geometry of the situation. Okay? Newton's laws, 
while we often state them mathematically in terms of algebraic equations, have another formulation which became popular during the 19th century and is even used to this day that's actually a geometric description of the motion. In fact, Newton's original description of motion was geometric. It's embodied in something called the least action principle. Here's a little bit of common sense coming into play. An object moves between two points on a path that takes the least amount of time. If I have no forces and I move in a straight line, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Every kid knows that one. In the case of an object moving in a gravitational field, heads up, if I toss this through a gravitational field, what is the shortest path between me and the gentleman in the front row? Yeah, that's, that's why I don't play basketball. It's a curved path. That's the least path. It won't do a little loop-de-loop -loop around. It won't bounce off the floor. Well, normally it won't bounce off the floor, but the least path for the configuration of the speed we give it and the toss will be a very specific trajectory. Galileo would have said, Newton would have said, oh, of course, it's a parabola. You solve the laws of gravity, the laws of Newton. Boom, out pops the parabolic trajectory. That turns out to also be solved as the least path in the presence of a force. What you're doing is you're using the geometry of the trajectory to describe the motion of the object through space rather than little numbers spooling up in some kind of algebraic computer. So this idea of least action is important to us. But how does that work? What do I mean by least path through a gravitational field? Well, we don't bother with those niceties in Newtonian physics, but Einstein was not content with that. He had to say, what does it mean to follow a least path in the presence of a gravity field? This is where Einstein's genius was. So people often think of Einstein as another worldly genius. He wasn't. He was really, really smart. Where Einstein's genius really lied was not in his mathematical ability or anything else. It was his ability to ask seemingly obvious, simple-minded questions and come up with extremely profound answers. What does it look like to ride, the, ride on the beam of light? What does it mean to follow the least path? When you answer those questions, you learn how the universe is put together. Now, Einstein's special relativity, we take the Newtonian view of least path, but Einstein said, look, space and time are only relative, not absolute. The only really observer-independent description that I can come up with is not the path through space, which is what I would say in Newtonian view for shortest distance between two lines is a straight line through space or a curved path through space. It's a curved path through space-time. After all, when I tossed the basketball to the gentleman in the front row and he tossed it back, you didn't see the path instantaneously. You saw the path play out in time from the moment the ball left my hands to the moment he caught it. So it's not only the space but the time as well. And, Newton's, and Einstein said, well, I can't look at the space part and the time part separately. I have to tie them together with space-time. And that's the key. He modified, Einstein modified the least action principle to state that an object moves along the shortest path between two points in space-time. Not two points in space, which is the Newton way of doing it, but two points in space-time. What does that mean? Well, in order to know what the shortest path is, in this room, the shortest path is defined by Euclidean geometry in space. What do I do to write the geometry of space-time? In other words, I have to describe the geometry not of space, but the geometry of four-dimensional space-time. That's really hard. 
The mathematics of that is crushingly difficult. That's why it took Einstein nearly 10 years to formulate it. He had to learn a completely new version of mathematics. He turned out to have to learn the mathematics of dynamic geometry, something called non-Euclidean geometry or Riemannian geometry. And any of you who have had any encounter with mathematics will probably learn that Riemannian geometry is about as bone-crunching as it gets. Let's look at, though, some pieces of how this works visually, because even though writing it down is not very instructive, there's a lot of intuitions we can get that you already possess. What do I mean by the shortest path, and how does it relate to the curvature of the space? Let's use space curvature for the time being, because it's easy for us to see in our heads. I can't visualize four dimensions either. On a flat surface, a flat sheet like I've drawn here, the shortest path between two points is a straight line. Bing, bing, bing. In fact, I can draw a little triangle. Oh, look, the inside angles are at up to 180 degrees, and parallel lines always stay parallel. That's our intuition about what geometry works like on a flat surface. If instead, I switch over to a curved surface, like a segment of a sphere. Again, we're all familiar with this. It's the surface of the Earth, the grid of latitude and longitude. In that case, the shortest distance between two points is a curved line. On a sphere, it's a great circle with the center at the, ce at the circle. Right? I don't fly in a straight line path from Chicago to Tokyo. I follow a great circle that, weirdly enough, doesn't go straight east-west from Chicago to Tokyo, but goes up through Canada over the Aleutian Islands. In fact, if you ever fly from Chicago to Tokyo, I did this many years ago, you spend most of your time over land, even though you're crossing the Pacific, technically. Why? Because you spend your time over Canada and the Aleutians. It's only that little part between the Aleutians and Sakhalin where you're over the Pacific. Because the least path along the surface of a sphere is a great circle. Furthermore, two parallel lines, parallel of, of constant longitude at the equator, converge at the poles. So if I'm looking at the least path to go from one point on a sphere to another, I'm going to follow a curved path as viewed from the outside. So a straight line path is on a straight, flat space. A curved line is in a curved space. Now, here's the key. Whereas it was light that unified space and time into space-time, it is geometry that unifies matter and space-time together. In empty space, space-time is flat, and least paths are going to be straight lines. If I take an object moving across that flat space, I have a conveniently flat space over here on the right, if you watch the camera on the left, and I roll the ball across the space, it simply goes across in a straight line. Now, Newton would have said, oh look, it's moving in a straight line, because it feels no external force to change its motion. Objects in motion stay in motion in a straight line unless acted upon by an outside force, Newton's first law. So motion in a straight line in the absence of forces is motion through a flat space-time, according to Einstein. Now, what if I curve that space-time? I put a little bend in it. Well. I'm going to feel the bank because my least path is now a curve. If I'm on the surface of a sphere, it's a great circle. So the least path in a curved space-time is going to be a curve, not a straight line between points. Furthermore, the amount of mass I have increases the amount of curvature. The analogy here is my little lycra sheet on a hoop. If I put a basketball in, it bends the sheet. If I put a tennis ball in, it bends the sheet less. 
if I put a two-pound steel ball bearing in there, it bends the sheet a whole lot. The amount of curvature, the amount of distortion of the sheet here is proportional to the mass. You can describe the same thing with space-time when you couple the space-time to the matter through the geometry equations, you find that the amount of curvature of space-time is proportional to the amount of mass that is present. Hmm, something that's proportional to the amount of mass present. Where have we heard that before, ladies and gentlemen? It's the gravitational force law. Therefore, a freely falling object through a curved space-time will follow a naturally curved path. Now, Newton would have said, oh look, the trajectory of that mass is getting deflected from a straight line because it's accelerating in response to an outside force. We don't have an agency in Newton's case. It's just feeling a force through space. So it's deflecting and curving. What Einstein said is, no, 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 no. Matter is causing the space-time in that vicinity to bend. The matter feels that bend of space-time and banks into the curve as if it were accelerating in response to a mysterious force at a distance. In other words, there is no force at a distance. It's the curvature of space-time. So if I looked at the space-time around the sun, I would see a shallow curvature. Far away, it looks flat. You're far away. Like one over the distance squared, the force is less, and particles follow a more or less straight-line trajectory with a very slight twist. But you're getting close. They feel that bank of the curve, and they whip around. The closed curves are ellipses, circles, or if they're moving fast enough, parabolas and hyperbolas. They're all the sections of a conic. Go to a black hole, the curvature gets extreme. You really bank that curve until you hit the event horizon, and you go right through. All right. Now, this is really, really hard to see with mathematics. This is why when Eddington in 1919, having done the observations that confirmed relativity, was asked by a reporter, is it true, Mr. Eddington, that only three people in the world understand relativity? Eddington sort of thought for a while, and the man thought maybe he didn't understand the question, so he repeated it, and Eddington said, yes, young man, I understood your question. I just can't think who the other two are. It wasn't clear he included Einstein in that number. Eddington also came up with the analogy of the rubber sheet. Well, rubber sheets are kind of strange things, and believe me, looking on Google, I didn't want to Google rubber sheet. But then I thought, hey, wait a minute. What's another expansive material that I can probably find very easily? And the answer is lycra spandex. It's used to make bathing suits and speedos and good stuff like that. And so I got some bathing suit grade ly lycra from a fabric company on the web. Thank you to Bear Fabrics. Of course, I gave them some money for that. Two yards of that on a fiberglass hoop sheet, just like a modern tent pole. It's nice and flat. We're going to look at it from above. The surface is pretty flat. If I roll a ball across it, it follows a nice straight line trajectory. Cam, you want to grab there? You're going to need to give me these, these things here in a second. It just follows a straight line path because this path is flat. Now I'm going to add a little bit of matter to it. A tennis ball. We are at Ohio State. I'm contractually obligated to bring in sports references at least once a week. The effect of that, um, of that tennis ball is to deflect the path a little bit, as to deflect and bend and dimple the sheet. So when I send the balls past it, they get a little bit of a curve to them. 
Not much. It's kind of subtle, but you can sort of see it banking around. Well, that's kind of an Earth-sized thing. We need the sun. A bigger mass gives a bigger dimple. You want to pull that tray out so it's just hanging on the edge there. You might want to, yeah, pull it out a bit. A little bit more. Thank you. It's just distorting my sheet a little bit too much. Curves it a whole bunch. In fact, if I give it a big enough transverse speed, there's a little friction in this problem, so it's a little hard to get it moving fast enough. I get deflections proportional to speed. Fast moving, move pretty quick. Slow moving, gee, it kind of looks like it's orbiting around that basketball as if it was feeling some kind of central force deflecting it from a straight line path. Let's really crank up the mass. Two-inch diameter stainless steel ball bearing. Density of steel is up around seven grams per cc. It's like it's moving in response to a central force. Now there's friction, so it slowly but surely comes to rest. It's feeling the curvature of the Lycra sheet, just like an object moving through space feels the curvature of space-time, and it curls around. But notice as it comes around here, it doesn't close into a simple loop because it gets a little bit faster curvature close by and it gets a little whip to it. And it processes around like a little rosette. Another thing? Hmm. Gaiman, why don't you roll that guy towards me? Roll the tennis ball across. It dimples the sheet by itself. Now, roll it towards here while I roll the steel ball bearing. Go. Gee, look at that. If I take two objects and I roll the heavy one through, notice how they deflect around. Notice how the motion is relative to their centers of mass because the big mass deflects the sheet more than the small mass. The analogy is not perfect. There's friction involved. It's obviously bending under the Earth's gravity. But now take this two-dimensional sheet, whip it around in all directions, and abstract that to four dimensions, and you've got the curvature of space-time. If I wanted a black hole here, the curvature would get way deep. Now exaggerate it. Woof. Look at that orbit just processing around. I'm kind of artificially keeping it going here by whipping the thing around to defeat friction. That's it. No force at a distance. No mysterious action working through the agency of empty space. Something far more interesting. Matter tells space-time how to curve. Curved space-time tells matter how to move. You put those two pieces together mathematically, you get a law of gravity. That's it. That's what general relativity can really be summarized as. Of course, mathematically, we've never been able to solve the equations of general relativity except in special cases because, well, whenever you can state the equation simply, that's usually a warning that the solutions are going to be really hard. They're basically coupled nonlinear differential equations. In four dimensions, by the way. Just make special. What Einstein does is he replaces the Newtonian notion of a force with the curvature of space-time as the agency of gravity. There's no mysterious action at a distance. It's simply the matter telling the space-time how to curve. And as matter moves through that space-time, it feels that curvature and moves in response to it like the ball banking around the curve in the Lycra sheet. It's simply feeling the fact that the presence of matter curves space-time, and curved space-time tells that matter how to move. What this does is something very interesting. As you noticed, 
the sheet's very dynamic. That analogy also holds. Space and time is not just simply some kind of cosmic backdrop against which physics is played out. Space and time are physical. Space-time is physical and it is dynamic. It can change, it can move, it can vibrate, it can do all kinds of things. It's no longer simply a geometric and mathematical notion that allows us to tell where something is and know what time it is. It's the structure of the universe itself. And so to understand how the universe evolves, we ask how space and time evolve. General relativity has withstood every experimental test that has been placed to it since it was per first proposed in 1915. A couple of those tests are really obvious. Some of those tests have been extremely subtle. It is yet to fail. We are continuing to test it, of course, because you always test a theory. You always look for its limits. But we find remarkable things. General relativity predicts all kinds of phenomena that were otherwise inexplicable in the Newtonian view of the world. It also predicts phenomena like black holes, like the curving of space-time, like gravitational lensing. That's no longer just a notion. It's actually something we're using as a tool to look for planets around other stars or basically use them to map matter in the far reaches of the universe. Here's some of the observations in 1915, 1916 that Einstein found that he could explain that Newton could not. If you look at Mercury's orbit, Merc I'll exaggerate it here, Mercury's orbit is an ellipse around the sun. It gets close at perihelion, far away at aphelion, and has a period of about 88 days. But over time, what people began to observe is that this orbit is not fixed in space. But in fact, if you wait a little bit later, this perihelion line, the line that passes, the line of nodes as it's called, that passes between perihelion and aphelion, rotates around in space. It's orbiting around this way and it rotates a little bit. It's a real slow rotation. It's 574 arc seconds per century, but it's noticeable. So noticeable that people realize this has to be something important. One possibility is that Mercury is getting tweaked out of its orbit by the presence of the gravity of all the other planets. And you can compute that, but you don't get the right answer. Maybe you have to have a little extra gravity we haven't accounted for. Ooh, I know, maybe a planet closer to the sun than Mercury we haven't seen yet. Let's name it Vulcan and compute what its mass and orbit should be to give it just the right tweak and then predict where it is. After all, we did that with the discovery of Neptune, looking at the tweaks in Uranus's orbit, there was never a planet there. There was not little, some little planet Vulcan close to the sun. Einstein, Newtonian gravity, predicts a precession of 531 arc seconds per century. That's 43 arc seconds per century smaller than what is actually observed. Most people would not worry about that, but that's a 10% effect. And it, as people made better and better measurements of Mercury, it just didn't go away. When Einstein proposed general relativity, he said, look, there's no action at a distance but going on. It's basically the space-time curvature changes as Mercury gets close to the sun, just like the curvature on this sheet is shallow far away and gets progressively steeper as it moves up towards where the ball bearing is. And so what happens is it feels, because it's on an elliptical orbit, if it was on a circular orbit, it would feel exactly the same curvature because it would be on a circle. But it's on an ellipse, which carries its orbit close in and then far away. It sees a little extra curvature close in, a little less curvature far away. That change in curvature with time gives the orbit a little twist as it goes around. How much of a twist? 43 arc seconds per century. When you account for the extra little twist because the curvature of space-time is greater close to the sun than it is far away in the elliptical orbit, 
you get exactly the observed precession of Mercury. Bear in mind that relativity was not designed to explain the precession of Mercury. It was asking a completely different set of questions. It just happened to solve a centuries-old problem. The other one is that light, traveling through space-time, travels on a least path. If I take my laser pointer and point it across, if you could see the laser beam going all the way across, it follows a basically straight-line path across the space-time. But if the space-time bends then that path should see a deflection nearby. You would see the deflection of the light very slightly as it moves around the curved space-time. The prediction is that gravity will bend the light as it passes close to a gravitating object, but not bend much as it's far away. The amount of bending is proportional to how close you come. This was confirmed in 1919, shortly after World War I. There was an, a, solar, a total solar eclipse of the sun, which was observable, observable from Brazil. A British team of astronomers, which was organized by Sir Arthur Eddington, went to go observe this eclipse. The idea being that if you wanted to watch stars with starlight that just grazes the sun, you don't want to do it during the daytime, of course the sun's out, because the sun's too bright to see the stars. But if you go to a total eclipse of the sun, you blot the star out using the moon and can see the stars. You map where the positions of those stars are during the eclipse. You come back six months later and photograph it when that part of the sky is up at midnight rather than noon or whenever. Accurately measure the positions of stars on a photographic plate the process of astrometry, and what you find is the stars will have deflected a little bit. Here's the, the scenario. We have the Earth on the left, the Sun, and a star out here in a true position. As the light comes past the Sun, it bends a little bit, but of course I sight the position of the star back along the dotted line, so I think the star is over there. Even though it's really here, the light is bent around the corner because the Sun acts like a little weak lens. If I look at this, this is actually data from a 1922 eclipse. When I get close to the sun and farther away, I see the position of the star actually on the sky, where the dot is. The arrow shows how much deflection was observed during the moment of the total eclipse. And you can see that all the arrows point away from the sun. These are tiny deflections. This big bar down here is one second of arc, which is about as good as you could do for the seeing from the ground. It's small, it's tiny, it's exactly what is predicted by the general theory of relativity. Not a little bit less, not a little bit more, exactly. Newtonian theory would predict a deflection that's two times different, and it simply doesn't work. You can actually do a least path argument for, for Newtonian theory, except what you do is now not think of light as little packets that move at the same speed to all observers, but just make it a BB moving at the speed of light. You would predict a deflection which is two times different than what's observed in relativity. To a world which had just come out of the First World War, which was weary of the incredible slaughter of that period, to have an obscure mathematical theory by a German scientist confirmed by a British team was absolutely electrifying. It was this observation that made Einstein world famous and began his fame as the greatest, greatest scientist of the 20th century. Now this all sounds sort of airy, impractical, but in fact relativity is not just simply a mathematical exercise in the ghostly physics of space and time. It has a practical aspect to it. This is not in your notes, of course, but that's actually linked off your notes. It's a little benefit for coming today. There's a practical aspect to it. The global positioning satellite system, those of you who have cell phones with GPS reckoning in them or maybe carry a GPS thing in your car for navigation, I've got a little backpacking version of a GPS receiver. 
The Global Positioning Satellite System is basically a system of 24 satellites that have been lofted into high Earth orbit that form a network surrounding the Earth. They're 20,000 kilometers up. Their orbit is designed so that they make one orbit around the Earth every 12 hours. They're not geostationary. They don't orbit 24 hours. At that height, the orbital speed is 14,000 kilometers per hour. So they're moving. They're moving pretty fast. Not big compared to the speed of light, but, you know, measurable. They carry on board them atomic clocks. When I whip out the old GPS receiver and hit the button and say, where the hell am I? It goes out and sees anywhere from 6 to 12 of the satellites that are above my horizon at any given instant, triangulates on their positions. Their signals sent down are signals basically are the ticks from their onboard clocks. The receiver compares them, applies a couple of corrections, and says, oh, you're at latitude, blah, 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 longitude, blah, 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 altitude so many meters. In fact, the GPS receiver now that the military scrambling has been taken off can tell the difference between me standing here and can tell when I walked over here. The accuracy of a ground-based GPS receiver without anything fancy is four meters. Error. And even better than that, from differential techniques, can get down to the position of a centimeter. You can navigate a car, you can navigate an aircraft, you can navigate a bomb to a target. That's what a JDAM is. That's what them, when they talk about satellite-guided bombs, it's just looking at the GPS system and saying, put the bomb there. And it goes there. Now, whether what's there is what you want to blow up is a different question. But it will go where you told it to go. Relativistic effects on these clocks. Special relativity says the clock is moving relative to me. Yesterday we learned the clocks move slow. If I take a clock and move it 14,000 kilometers an hour and I apply the special theory of relativity, it predicts that the clock is moving 7 microseconds per day slower than a clock, identical clock here on the ground. So I take an atomic clock on the ground, I loft one in the GPS satellite, I compare them, I would see that that clock's losing time against my ground-based clock because it's moving at 14,000 kilometers a second in its orbit by 7 microseconds per day. Slower. Exactly what we saw with uh, Dick and Jane yesterday. General relativity says, oh look, as I'm further away from a region of space-time curvature due to the mass, I see a different curvature. Space-time tells me how my clock works. So when I'm close to a gravitating body, my clock runs slower. When I move further away, I get closer and closer to ideal flat space, and the clock runs faster relative to the clock deep in the potential well. Remember when Jack and Jill went, Jack went down the black hole and compared their clocks? How much faster? 45 microseconds per day faster. It's further from the Earth's mass. I see it ticking 45 microseconds per day faster. Let's say the military and NASA engineers decided, ah, screw this relativity stuff, it's too hard. Let's just look at the clock and compare the time. And when I pull out my GPS receiver, it says, you're not at Evans Laboratory, you're in Dayton, Ohio, 5,000 feet in the air, moving west at 50 miles an hour. Clearly the GPS system fails, and it just gets worse day by day. The combined correction is 38 microseconds per day. Inside the GPS receivers, what they do is they take the clock and say, you know, when this thing runs in space, it's going to run faster. So make it run slower on the ground, put it in and loft it so that they're synchronized on orbit. Because it's running slower here, it runs a little bit faster to make up for the desync. It's going to be moving in its orbit. Correct for that orbit using special relativity. Without the engineers using relativity, the GPS system would simply fail. Period. It would fail within a day. It works beautifully. Newton's laws. What happens to Newton's laws? They're approximations of general relativity. They still work, but they actually come out when you have weak gravitational fields and speeds that are very slow compared to the speed of light.
They also work accurately, therefore, in the everyday world. We're in a slow place with slow gravity, and they're mathematically very simple, but when you get really precise, GR and special relativity matter. They're real. It's the physics of the universe, and we'll see the consequences of that tomorrow.